we know how open source can bring lots of traction into a business and you can form a business around it. So we did think about monetization even before writing a single line of code. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. today with Dor Laor, who is the CEO and founder of SillyDB and one of the creators of and involved in many open source projects. But today we're going to focus our conversation on SillyDB. Dor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be around here. Thank Eric. Yeah, totally. Dor, there's probably, as I mentioned in the beginning, there's a lot we could discuss. We'll focus our conversation around Scylla. Feel free to jump around as it relates, as it makes sense. But maybe you could first, I think it helps to have you ground our conversation in what SillaDB is, and then we can get into the history. Sure. So SillaDB is a database. We re-implemented Apache Cassandra from scratch in C++. So it's uh, as wire compatible with Apache Cassandra, even beyond uh, just the wire protocol, everything else is compatible. So the, for example, the file format is compatible. A year ago, we added compatibility with uh, DynamoDB. So uh, you can think about Scylla as you think about uh, DynamoDB and Cassandra. So it's a NoSQL database, big data, real-time, OLTP workloads. And it comes with an open source offering, an enterprise, and as a service. Fantastic. I was unaware of the Dynamo compatibility, which is exciting. And so makes total sense. How did you stumble into this? Is this something you've aspired to do for some time? Uh, We definitely stumbled into it. Actually, back in 2012, when uh, my co-founder and I, Avi, we were back then working at Red Hat, we we did a list of uh, potential target uh, projects in order to form a company around. And database was one of the projects, but we figured, hey, everybody already implemented databases with all of the options, even with uh, newer SSD hardware. So we didn't pick that and we picked some other project. It, it's a nice story on itself, but uh, when we had to pivot, we pivoted into the database world because we, we, we wanted to demonstrate performance with Cassandra and the performance wasn't there. So this is how we stumbled upon Cassandra. If you like, I can elaborate on that project a little bit more. It's interesting. Please do. Um, it would also be interesting to hear, maybe actually before you get into that, Red Hat is you know the kind of premier or first, the original open source company. And you worked at Red Hat and, and you were still excited about starting your own open source company, it sounds like. That's right. I'm an open source fan, an open source believer. I think I do it for hobby, but also for profit too. It's super nice that these passes can be combined it's funny that uh, I worked at Red Hat between 2008 and 2012. And at that time, Red Hat was obviously a big leader in, in open source. And uh, they were still kind of pitching open source as if it's something new, although the entire world already back then moved to open source. Definitely it's now. So it's nice to be able to work and make profit from your hobby. Great. And, and now tell us about this project. So even a little bit more background, there's a lot of parallel lines between SillaDB as a startup and the startup company that brought me to Red Hat in our journey. So 
In 2005, I met uh, Avi, my co-founder. We were among the first employees at that st- Israeli startup that was called Kubernetes. With its name reply, initially we did something around networking before I built a Terabit router in another startup. And at Kubernetes, we had to pivot and, and we s- somehow pivoted three times. The last pivot was uh, our last chance and it was pretty successful. Before we worked on the Zen hypervisor, with a pivot idea, which didn't result in, in a success. So we had to pivot away from it. And because we were familiar with the Zen architecture, Avi came along with a fabulous idea for a hypervisor, and that was the KVM hypervisor. And ever since we moved to the KVM hypervisor path, the company started to get traction and the project really boomed on the Linux community. It was part of the Linux kernel. And we also worked with another existing open source uh, project called QMU, which was successful as well. Actually, we've made it more successful with KVM. And eventually the company was acquired by Red Hat, where we spent four years and I managed the hypervisor development at Red Hat, the KVM and, and Zen. And Avi and I always wanted to have our own startup. So th- this is where we formed this company. Now, originally, we didn't know much about databases, what, but we had a lot of knowledge about operating systems, kernels, and, uh, and virtualization. So back then, we, we identified that originally with virtualization helped people to move physical workload to the virtual ones. But over time, the uh, usage properties were, were different. Uh, it's not that you were about to run the same physical workload on a virtual world. Once you had virtual machines, you could just run a single workload inside your virtual machine. So this was kind of, uh, now now it's obvious, but back then in uh, 2012, it was like we were onto something. So we decided to create a new operating system from scratch uh, with our own kernel that will be focusing on virtual workloads and just run a single application inside of it. And by doing it, we were about to offer a big performance boost and also manageability because think about how many operating system configuration file you need to tune in order to run your single workload. So everything was in place and and great and we launched a new open source project. But the problem is in parallel to us, Docker just began to boom. And usually the answer that we, we got is Docker is the answer, what's the question? So there was little attention span to uh, a unikernel. This unikernel still lives today, and even people use it, and it's continued to be developed, not not by us, but by the community. But we had to pivot away from it in 2014. And uh, when we wanted to show that applications run on our OS called OSV for virtualization better than Linux, uh, we compared the two, and one of the workloads was Cassandra. But when, at the time, we could offer a 70% performance improvements when we run Redis on OSV versus Redis on Linux, but when we did the same with Cassandra, the needle didn't move much. And we discovered that Cassandra itself is, is really inefficient. So when we realized we need to pivot, we went back to this discovery did market research, did additional technology research, and we decided to turn the company to ditch the previous project and rewrite Cassandra from scratch in C++. And that was in 2014, and this is what we do still today. 
Wow, you were really ahead of your time on the Unikernel OSV. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think you still hear people talking about that as the future. How amazing that you saw it when you did. Thanks. Could be that uh, Unikernel is a really nice wish list always. Usually the competition is what's good enough. And, and Linux is so good, it's even more than a good enough as it is. So here and there, just recently, I saw another Unikernel project. But altogether, especially with the rise of uh, containers, Docker, now Kubernetes, it's really hard to show massive gains. We wanted to try to partner with uh, cloud vendors and hypervisor vendors. Back in the days, it was difficult because OSV managed to boot a full OS in just uh, uh, under one second. Yeah. But uh, in 2013, the provisioning time of a new VM instance on AWS was a couple of minutes. So this saving wasn't really propagating to the end user. These days, it's different, but still, um, I don't see Unikernel's burst right now, especially with uh, Docker and Kubernetes. Yeah, no, agreed. And I've, I've seen lots of open source projects and companies that do great work and then Docker and Kubernetes kind of reset the landscape. And now we all have to consider them the way we have to consider Linux. But exciting that it eventually got you to experimenting with Redis and Cassandra databases in general and developing Scylla. So you you were re-implementing Cassandra from bottoms up using C++, correct? Correct. And maybe just some context, how is Cassandra? Is it also, what's the background of Cassandra? Is it also C++? No, Cassandra is written in Java, and that's one of the reasons that we selected Cassandra because uh, we're kind of uh, competing with uh, against someone with, that fights with his, his hand against tied against his back. It's just a, a wrong choice of language for uh, such a project, su- such a complicated, a uh, high-speed I/O project. It's just wrong. It's hard. So it's great to compete against uh, such a project, and that's the reason why we offer. 5x to 10x performance improvements. And, and I wonder if that, that language choice comes out of its kind of Hadoop heritage. Yeah, you know, Cassandra grew up around the time of HBase and other kind of Hadoop-related work that was all developed in Java. I, I don't know. It's true. We also, back then, we looked at uh, MapR that uh, implemented portions of uh, Hadoop in C++. So we, we took that, that example, MAPR didn't end up well, but I don't think it's related to the choice of language. And uh, also it's more complicated with, uh, with Hadoop because developers do write a code, a MapReduce, in Java. So it's fine to, if your uh, application is in Java, it's okay to, and it's running in, in the same, on the same platform, it's okay to have Java, Java. But uh, with the database, uh, Everything is over the network, so it doesn't necessarily, the, the language of choice in the client is independent of the server, and it just makes much more sense to write in a native language. Today, there are better native languages than JVM in terms of performance, like Go, and these days Rust, but C++ is still great, so it works well for our use case. And I must also say that it's not just the language. The language is, is only a tool, an enabler to get to accomplish what we like to do. And what we like to do, because we have this uh, ver- low-level experience with uh, OS and, and virtualization, 
we like to gain control. Gaining control is, for example, be able to be the one who sends the I.O. and in, in a DMA asynchronously and control all aspects of execution. So at Scylla, for example, we're trying to bypass even the Linux kernel. With all of the uh, experience and knowledge that we've got, we're trying to implement things in, in user space and making sure that the database is the one that controls everything. So when you install Scylla, for example, we automatically have a mini benchmark, a micro benchmark under the hood that tests the disk performance. We save these numbers in our configuration and we make sure that we never exceed the maximum disk performance. Because if we exceed this number, then we just make the disk or the file system to queue everything. And then we lose control. Some of the data needs to have low latency for real-time queries. And some data may be not important in terms of latency, like when we stream data to new nodes. And Scylla is built around this notion. So C++ is just an enabler to have the perfect control over I.O., CPU, scheduling, et cetera. And I, I imagine it gives you an opportunity to rethink all, all kinds of elements in the architecture as you go. Exactly. So another thing that unique thing that we have is, um, is sharding. So in both in Hadoop and in uh, modern distributed databases, the data set is sharded because it cannot fit a single machine. So in, in Cassandra and Scylla, the data is sharded into, into servers. Now, we have another level of sharding, which we call a shard per core. So if you have a machine a server with uh, 20 cores, then we shard it, divide the data into the number of cores, 20, and each chunk is independent. There is shared nothing between these cores. And there is no locking whatsoever, nothing. So every CPU is not dependent on the other CPUs. And on x86, if you lock, then of course you need to wait for the other CPU to release that lock. And that's expensive. But even if the lock is not owned by another CPU, you'll have a penalty of 20%. So Scylla doesn't use uses locks at all. And also, it's not just the CPU, but I.O. paths are also independent. And also memory is pinned together with the, the CPU that it runs on. In an environment where you have multi-socket machine, if one CPU needs to access memory that, that resides on the other socket, you pay 100% penalty in accessing it. So Scylla is there, all designed around shared nothing and sharding on the server level and also on the CPU core level. Awesome. Uh, taking a step back from the technology for a bit, tell me more about how this grew from a project of just yours and Avi's to where you are today. Uh, I imagine other people got involved at some point. Had you already incorporated the company or was that something you did after? And maybe you can get into some uh, thoughts around uh, how you looked at licensing and governance of the project. Sure. So, so it, it definitely was a long project and a long journey of ours. Relatively quickly or in parallel of uh, after we decided we were going to form a company, we, we got a seed investment from the founders of the previous companies and, and several other serial entrepreneurs in Israel. And we started to go with uh, the first project, the US. 
And a couple of months later, we got an investment from uh, VC investment from, from Bess- led by Bessemer. So th- this is how we formed the company and also did the seed and uh, in a round. And that company, we started the open source way and uh, we just utilized something that we're experienced in. And we, we know how open source can bring lots of traction into a business and, and, and you can form a business around it. So the first project was uh, open source from the very beginning with a very permissive license because the application had to link with it. And we wanted to maximize our chances to partner with many, many players. Also, we did think about monetization even before writing a single line of code. And with an OS, like, like coming from Red Hat, many players will want to use the OS for free and many players will want to buy support just to get the stability and get the confidence that comes with it. So th- that's kind of a brief history. And another interesting thing, especially around COVID, is uh, both at the previous startup and also at Red Hat, we worked with a distributed team, uh, both within the company, within the startup and within Red Hat. And also uh, when you work with open source, by nature, you work with people all around the world. And, and it's super it's it's fascinating and it's fun and, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of this collaboration not just in terms of uh, coding but also in terms of uh, how you manage uh, other projects not just uh, coding projects so this is how we formed the company from day one and we started to hire people that we knew from the open source space uh, so we have KVM and kernel contributors on board, and we have other contributors that contribute to QMU and along the years, different other projects. So we began to uh, add people around the world. And and today we have almost people in 20 countries around the world from Japan to Brazil. It's interesting from your perspective, having already ran or operated other open source communities, do you find that some of those other communities come with you to the new one? You know, you mentioned hiring KVM and other experts to work with you on Scylla. Does it help to kind of bootstrap a community that way? Or, or do you end up having to kind of find all new people interested in that particular solution? It's a good uh, question. So it's helpful, but uh you can only move a small extent. It's definitely good to come with credibility. So people, when we launch a new database, people give us the credit even before we did something and do try to watch. And it's good also to be connected to people at high places in different companies. It's also by, I encourage everyone on board to contribute to open source because it just help you and help your resume, whether it's you'd like to be an entrepreneur or not. So that's great. But uh, in terms of moving people from projects, it's not always simple. For example, those who work on Linux kernel are really married to the Linux kernel project. It's it's almost impossible to move them out. We did move them out to a, some of them to a parallel world in with OS virtualization, and most of them moved with us to the database. But it's not that simple, but it's possible. And the user community, usually users have different uh, perspective or different interest. So they'll continue to do what they have been doing before. In addition to individuals in your community, what about your first kind of critical production workloads or, or companies that rely on you? 
how do you find those types of users or do they come from your your kind of community contributors so uh usually contributors to uh, a complicated project as database uh have different character properties than the end user they can all be developers but it's different t- types of developers so the contributor community is, is one type of audience and the user community is, is a different one. So we had to go to look for a users which we didn't know them before. So it, it was more kind of uh, looking for users ourselves. And that's kind of a standard activity. We've done it also with uh, open source movement and also with uh, initially we barely had uh, Salesforce initially. Now, now we do and, and the company sells like any other standard enterprise and as a service company. But early in the days, we did it like uh, walking between uh, everyone we could pitch to, whether it's open source or not, and everyone who has been using Cassandra or face pains with uh, existing databases. So it's always really good to piggyback on existing projects. It worked for us with the KVM hypervisor, piggybacking on Linux and trying to convert Zen users. And it works for us with uh, Cassandra and these days with uh, DynamoDB too. Makes total sense. Good work on getting those initial production users. Maybe you already touched on this. How did you think through the, the licensing and governance of the open source as it grew? We had to think it before uh, it started to grow. Basically, the, the moment you launch the project, then it needs to ideally you wouldn't change the license. I'm really ad- against changing licenses unless it's absolutely must. We, we have two projects uh, at Scylla. One is the database itself, and we chose to license it uh, with AGPL. We saw the AGPL example with MongoDB, and it was successful for them. And I think that AGPL is a license that really encourages contributions. So it forces you to contribute if you change the code, if you distribute the code or not. Basically, the GPL itself has a big hole in it that uh, AGPL closes. Because with GPL, and we saw that at Red Hat, if you use GPL code, but you don't distribute binaries, so you only provide something as a service, whether you're Facebook or an Amazon or something like this, then it's not a must to contribute your changes back to the community. So AGPL is more right in that sense. And for us, it was important to select this type of license, which will offer us some type of protection from all of the gorillas out there who may use code without contributing back. There's no problem to use AGPL code for free. No problem at all. Whether you contribute at all or not, it's fine. But if you do need to change the server code, then you need to contribute the changes back. So I think it's A, fair, and also B, it's a good compromise between permissive license and non-permissive license. We have another project, which is the core engine of the database. We've made it an independent project. Uh, it's called CSTAR. This independent project is it's not a, a end-user product. It's more of a library that allows you to write asynchronous projects like a database. For example, there's a company called Vectorized, and they're trying to rewrite Kafka 
so Kafka is written in Java too. So they saw the example that we have started and they tried to duplicate it and bring it into the streaming world. And they use our core engine, C-Star. Um, so because we, we knew that uh, people will use the, the engine, C-Star, in variety of ways, and it makes sense for them to, they wouldn't want to contribute all of the code back, then we gave C-Star an Apache license. So this way, they can be independent with, with the directions that they take. And Sister is also used by Red Hat with the Ceph project and by several startups who do NVMe over TCP. So it, it's a good independent project. And we didn't have direct monetization goals around Sister. So that's why it's Apache. Very neat. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I wasn't aware of where all the places that C-Star had gone. Congratulations. I want to kind of discuss a, a topic quickly from you that's a bit more, I guess, theoretical or abstract. I've explored this myself some. Uh, when I was at Google, we developed an open source project, uh, Apache Beam, that um, was just an interface that could be used on a proprietary service, Cloud Dataflow, as well as other open source services or engines, I should say, like uh, Flink or Spark. And this idea of, of separating the interface from the engine in open source is becoming much more meaningful as we go into cloud, because in some ways with the cloud, you the customers only see the interface and there's an opportunity to swap engines behind the scene. And, and of course, you've pioneered this with, with Scylla. You, you realize that the Cassandra API is something that a lot of customers have already built against. And you give them the opportunity for a new execution engine. C-Star, I guess, follows the same pattern. Is, is this the way of the future? Will we see more kind of, uh, you know, interface-specific projects and then kind of more execution engine, if you want to use those types of words, projects, and, and end up in a world where, where people kind of gravitate to an interface and then have an op- a menu of execution engines behind it? I think we'll we'll see all bunch of options. Like I can say for ourselves, we're very creative in terms of implementation, but we're not necessarily the experts or the most innovative around APIs. I wish we were, <laughs> but uh, so far we're not. And this way, it, it makes a lot of sense to just. Uh, take an existing successful good API and just replace the implementation under the hood. And we've done it with Cassandra. We're doing it with DynamoDB, even though Dynamo is, is a closed source project. We're kind of a reversing the trend. Usually Amazon is doing this with the open source code and we're kind of a reversing the trends. So it, it makes tons of sense. And it's also a natural open source movement. It's a movement that we, we did with KVM versus VMware. And uh, many times open source begins by trying to open up uh, infrastructure that was only closed until now, sometimes without being API compatible. And there are cases where API compatibility is important and there are cases where it's less important. We used to get questions about uh, why does the world need another database, especially several years back, Every week or so, there was another database company or another database project. And the world doesn't need another new database. It needs uh, a better implementation of uh, existing good APIs. 
SQL, by the way, is a great database API. So project just needs to try to be compatible with, with SQL. Yep, totally. Take us now to the kind of the present day. What are you working on now? What's the future hold for the Scylla project? Next week in January 12, we have the Scylla Summit. Probably our audience will will hear it in the history. And we're launching Project Circe, which is a 12-month roadmap that transforms Scylla. The names are from the Greek mythology. Uh, Scylla was a nymph, and Circe was a witch that transformed Scylla into a monster with uh, 12 tenancles. So we're trying... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so we're we're transforming. We, we've made uh, the logo cute and all our mascot, but uh, it was a monster, dreadful monster, and uh, we're trying to transform now Scylla to a monstrous database. The main idea is that uh, we have fantastic performance. We, we have compatibility with, with multiple APIs. Uh, we even have Kubernetes uh, ability now, but we we're not enough satisfied with the elasticity aspects and the manageability aspects of Scylla. I think that today Scylla is easier to manage than Cassandra, MongoDB, and Redis, but we like to make it more smoother. So we're replacing big components in Scylla. We're taking the Raft consensus protocol and putting it in the base of our system. It will allow users to have data always consistent, transactional data, as opposed to eventual consistency guarantee that Scylla and Cassandra in DynamoDB has. And it will also offer us to provide better elasticity and maintainability without diving into it too much. And this project seriously will be will have a web page and will publish every month a new functionality of this project over the course of the next 12 months. That's wonderful. I was just counting the tentacles on the logo. I didn't see 12, but I, th- I think I saw seven, which implies another five behind. So very good. <laughs> we have another logo for Project Circe with, uh, with more tentacles. Okay. <laughs> uh, stay, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Wonderful. And hopefully we've piqued the interest of some folks on the show about Scylla. If there's folks listening that want to get more involved, any suggestions on how they would go about that? If you're a user, the easiest thing is to try to to download, to use Kubernetes or to use our uh, managed cloud. If you're a contributor, go ahead, check the code on GitHub. The code is fabulous. We're now, we started with C11, proceeded to C14, 17, and now C20 with uh, coroutines and really exciting programming techniques. So just as a, as a good interesting learning experience, then it's really fascinating to check out the code. So whatever you like, there is something that can be interesting for you. And also we have fabulous user base. So users like Discord use us, Strava use us, Medium use us, Starbucks use us. So it's a good database of choice. Dor, thanks so much for your time today. I've, during my time at Google, we, we used KVM. I've heard about your work for years. And it's a pleasure to meet you and hear the story behind Scylla. I'm excited for what you're doing. Good luck on the conference or the summit next week. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.